0: You hear me now? Oh, well, thanks for that. Wow, Jasmine, that's amazing. That just touched everybody, eh? That's a powerful testimony. It's a power testimony of God's love. He loved you while you were in that mess, eh? And he loved you out through the family and people around you. That's our God. That is our God. Well... Welcome to the centre, if this is your first time, just soak it in, that's all I can say. Yeah. Alright, well, the title of my message is, Seek First the Kingdom of God and His Righteousness. That's actually, uh, its not. I didn't make that title up, I actually got it from a verse, it's actually verse 33 from Matthew chapter 6. It's something that's stuck with me since this year, since Pastor Lisa actually mentioned it in a message on Vision Sunday. In fact it's been mentioned a few times, but it stuck with me. I couldn't shake it, but I also couldn't figure it out. I understood well, I thought I understood the righteousness part because if you heard my message last time I preached on righteousness. Now I know some of you some of you might know know what righteousness is. Righteousness I'll just simplify it, is right standing with God. And it's not something that I did to get that. It's something that God put on us. The Bible says he imputed righteousness on us. He accounted us righteous. It's an accounting term because an account was paid. So it's nothing I did. He's just put it. But the Bible also describes righteousness as a robe, as a garment. So when we give our heart to Jesus, the first thing, the very first thing God does is puts that robe over us because it covers our sinful nature. So if you can keep that in mind, this should help you. So I'll read the scripture, Matthew 6:31 to 33, uh, 34. Therefore, this is Jesus talking, by the way. Therefore, do not worry, saying, "What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear?" For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that all you all need. Sorry, your Father, your heavenly Father knows that you need all things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So it's probably the only place that I've read where Jesus is actually specifically said to seek something. You know, so I started to look at it. And also when you read that scripture you can kind of get stuck just on the kingdom of God, but it actually says, you know, first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. So righteousness is just the same priority. So that tells me, in order for us to accept his righteousness, we need to understand what what the kingdom of God is. What is it we're seeking in there? Because obviously they go hand in hand. Why would Jesus put those two words together? Everything in the Bible is done on purpose. There's the law of first mention. Do you know that the first time love was mentioned was with Abraham, when he offered his son? God said, I want you to offer your only son, the one you love. But Abraham had two sons. Why did God say that? Because he was painting a picture of what he's about to do for us. I won't get into that. That's a whole nother story, but I just wanted to point that out. So when you read that scripture, it's first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So I, asked, so I started looking into it thinking, and this is where I got stuck. I got stuck on kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? How do I define that? So I started looking into it, and I wasn't satisfied with the answers I was getting, like from other people and, and definitions, and people tried to describe it and just and 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 they had lots of words, and I'm not saying they were wrong, but it wasn't revelation. It wasn't what I was seeking. I think Jesus was being quite specific. I can understand righteousness because we I've been looking into it, so I can seek that. But the righteousness, why does it not work for us sometimes? You know, why do we keep going up and down, up and down, up and down with God? So in the end, I put it on the shelf and thought, I better get on with my message, I can't i can't use it. And then I thought, oh, I'll do a message on redemption because it's all to do with the cross, and redemption's huge. Again, I couldn't. It was like a jumbled mess for me. And It wasn't until Thursday morning. I still had nothing. And I put a little message, seven-minute message on of this preacher I like to listen to. And I was on my way to work, and oh man, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I knew what I was going to preach on. I still didn't have the answer to that scripture, but I knew what I was going to preach on. So I started doing my message around this revelation. And by the end of it, I ended up calling my title that because I got the revelation. God just put all the pieces together. He does that. It was like I was a wrestling match. And sometimes maybe we need to do that to get to the root of it. So what do you think the kingdom of God is specifically? It's God's love for us. We just heard it. That's his kingdom. That's what he operates in. So specifically, we seek his love for us first and his righteousness. That makes sense for us to accept a gift like righteousness to make us holy and acceptable because we're not. He loved us first. So we accept his love live in that love then we can accept righteousness are we hearing it so seek first god's love for you and his righteousness 1 john 4 uh, 1 john 14 in this love not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Sorry, my computer's playing up a little. So love is defined like this. In this love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. It's love defined. It's not the love that's out there. It's not the love that you know in the world. It's completely different. The love in the world now is distorted because now they're like, oh, we love you. You can do whatever you want. That's not love. Love corrects. Love has boundaries. Love teaches and grows. You know, sometimes God might close a door on you and you're like, why? Because He's wanting you to walk through a bigger door. Does He not? He's a father, so He does. The Bible talks about that He will correct us if He needs to, He does it through the preaching, through the pastors a dream, anything. Any which way God will try and get to you, he will get to you. You know, the Holy Spirit is always talking to us. It's just whether we've taken the time to listen to him. You know, it says that he's a uh, small, small, tiny, still voice. When was the last time you were still? And got out of your mind and dropped into your heart. What is the Holy Spirit? He's always talking Yet so the, yet many times the emphasis for Christians is we've got to love God. We've got to love God. You must love God. That just becomes the sum total of the law. The sum total of the law is you shall love your God with all your heart, all your mind and all your soul. The greatest commandment in the Old Testament. Has anyone done that? Honestly, how can you love God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind? All is all. Impossible. Even the best of them in the Old Testament, King David, couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. If we're going to be honest, David committed some pretty bad sin. He, was a, he committed adultery and he also committed murder. But God forgave him. But he couldn't attain to that. He couldn't live up to the Ten Commandments, could he? He broke them, just like everyone else. You see, the law condemns the best of us. God's love for us, his grace saves the worst of us. Paul's an example. Even Paul admits he's the greatest sinner of us all. I mean, he used to... He was a Pharisee. He used to murder Christians. He pulled them out of the churches. He was zealous for God, but in the wrong way. But what did God do? God seems to always pick the most unlikely person to do his work. He had one encounter... Paul encountered Jesus. One encounter and it changed his life. It changed his name. He was formerly known as Saul. Paul was transformed in an instance. He wrote the New Testament. He's the one that preaches grace and righteousness. A lot of that came from Paul. He never even met Jesus like the disciples. But he became part of the discipleship. So for 1,500 years, God put man under the law. Why would God do that? Why did God make up Ten Commandments knowing that we couldn't live up to it? Because he wanted man, and I'm talking about, when I mean man, all of us, to realize we can't do it. He's a holy God. We can't do, we can't earn our place with him. We can't obey those Ten Commandments. We fail every time. So it was to show us that he's a holy God and that you can't do anything in your own strength to do anything for God. So God said, okay, 1,500 years, I think you guys have got it now. You can't do it. You can't attain to it. You've all failed. Now watch what I'm going to do. Watch me now. I'm going to love you with all my heart, all my soul and all my spirit. He just turned that commandment around and poured out his love. Everything, every fiber of his being, he said all. All. Do we understand the magnitude of that? Everything. Not only did he pull out his love with all his mind, all his spirit, he gave his life for us. He even went further. How many of us would give up our own son and daughter? We can't. God's love is infinite, it's huge. That's God loving on us with everything, eh? So today we love him because he first loved us. The emphasis now should be on the love of God for you. Not what you can do for God, but what God has done for you. It's not your love. It's not your love for God. It's God's love for you. 1 John 4 verse 16. And we have known and believed the love of God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. It's not enough to know that God loves you. You've got to believe it. How many Christians go, I've heard that scripture, I know that scripture, I know God loves me. Of course he does. But do you actually believe it? Notice the scripture doesn't say, know God's love, but no, it says, known and believed. You've got to believe it. What did Jesus say? Only believe. Only believe. He didn't ask you to earn it. He just said, we've done it for you. It's finished. you just got to receive it. The only way it works is by believing. Stop trying to strive. Stop trying to impress me. I'm already impressed with you. If I wasn't impressed with you, why would I pull my love out and give my son up? His love is infinite. You know, when God actually says in the Bible, there is nothing that will separate his love from us. When God says nothing, it's nothing. That's it. End of story. There's nothing to look into that. Yeah, it's too big for us to understand. Because we're just, you know, our brains can't handle it. But our spirit can. So stop living up here. Live down here. God lives here. Yes, we can get really bad thoughts and all that, and they, you know? But you drop down into your heart, those bad thoughts don't go down there. That's where God lives. You've got to live down here, and then it'll affect up here, eh? So how does God love us? How did he love us? Just look at the cross. The greatest demonstration of God's love for you is at the cross. It all started and it all ended at the cross. The cross should always be on our mind. Jesus should always be on our mind. So it's not enough to know but believe, like Jesus said, only believe. Let's let's have a look at the parable of the lost son. Now Jesus shared a lot of parables, and and the main reason I think he did it was so that he could get people to see the kingdom of God, because it was a descriptive way of describing either God's heart or how the kingdom operates. And I think the parable of the lost son is one of the best ones for me because it describes God's heart, how he looks at us and how he treats us. So Jesus shared this parable of a man who had two sons, and the younger of them says to the father, Father, I want my inheritance now. Now usually you get inheritance when a parent passes away, especially in Israel, you know, they didn't get it till they they were dead, so he was effectively saying to his dad I wish you were dead, I just want my inheritance so the father said fine, here's your inheritance so the son left he went out living, spent all his money whatever he did with it but when his money ran out, his friends ran out now he's depressed and he's poor then he goes and gets a job he tries to find a job, so now he ends up in a pig pen and for an Israel, for a Jew in those days working in a pig pen was the lowest of lows it was the pits So now the son's looking at the pig's food, and he's actually envying the pigs, eating, because he's hungry. He doesn't even have money to buy food. He'd he'd rather eat what the pigs are eating. So in in verse 17, it actually says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He still doesn't believe the father loves him. He's now realized I've got to go back and earn something. Wrong attitude. But at least he's he's done the right thing. At least he's going back. So I wonder how many of us are still trying to earn God's favor, love, Anything like that? We all do it sometimes without even knowing it. We're always striving. Stop it. God says, rest in me. If you rest in God, it just becomes easy, doesn't it? It becomes organic and natural. Things happen. It's what the world is waiting for right now. is for us to wake up to this. It's here right now. You can take it right now. believe. So let me ask you this question. All the while the son was out there living that way, did the father still love him? When the son was depressed at the pig pen at the lowest point of his life, did the father still love him? The reality is the father loved him but he was depressed. Why? Because he didn't believe in it. we... Turn that down a bit, Haley. It's just thank you. When he fell into shame and when he fell into social disfavor, did the father still love him? Yes. Has the father forgiven him, even when he's in that state? Yes. So the fact that God loves you does not change your life until you believe it. God's always there. His love is always abounding. His grace—the Bible says—the grace abounds where there's sin. You know, he was living in sin, but grace kept abounding until he could turn around and receive it. I don't care how long you've been away from God, or if you've never met God. His love is abounding to you right now. It has never stopped. Like the Bible says, nothing can separate you from God. Only we separate ourselves in our belief. We let we let other things get in. You know, God's always there. Always. So my question to you is, do you believe God loves you or do you just know it? Is it just knowledge? It's one thing to have knowledge, but it's another thing to believe it. So all the while the son is in poverty and depression, does the father have enough bread for him to eat? Does he have enough riches of all his resources to give him? Yeah, it's there waiting for you. All the riches and glory in Christ are waiting for us to just take it. It's there. Verse 20, I'm carrying on with the parable a little bit. So this is, remember, this is Jesus talking. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he's come back in unworthiness. But the father said to his servants, if you notice, the father didn't even say anything. He just did action. He said, bring out the best robe. Put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring out the fatted calf, here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Was the fetid calf there waiting for him? Yep. Did the father hold any grudge? Has the father forgiven the son? You see, repentance is turning this way, you know, turning towards God. It's running towards God. That's repentance. You can confess your sin all you like, but if you're not turning back to God, it means nothing you're just stuck in that trap you're stuck under the law of sin the point is right believing leads to right living does it not because we've all tried it it's not working is it tell me if it was, tell me if it's working and I'll correct myself but I don't think it's not I want to come back to the robe you know the first thing the father did was I'm going to put the best robe on you, do you know, and like I said the robe represents righteousness what did he do? even though he didn't believe it, even though he came in condemnation, even though he was still unworthy and he wanted to earn it and be a servant, God said, no, I'm not having that. You're my son. Here's my righteousness. Now you're made holy. Now you can be in my presence. Here's my love. That's what God's done for every single one in this planet. Believe it. Don't just know it. Are Are you hearing me? Or is it just going over? All right, John 15, 9 to 12. Now this is Jesus talking. All right, as the Father loved me, I, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. That's it. There's no Ten Commandments. That's the commandment in the New Testament. You live by that, you fulfill the Ten Commandments. It's like it's written in your heart, it's not on stone anymore, it's not hard like stone. God's awesome, He's amazing. No, I just had a little bit of a revelation I was there. You know, I, I, I tend, in the natural, I have a tendency to go quite negative. And I'm sure Amy and even my dad can <laughs> say that. I'll, if you get into politics, I'll just go over the top. It gets me angry because all I see is negative. And I shouldn't. I, I should be more positive. But I can't see negative. I can point out something negative pretty flipping quickly, but I don't see anything negative. So I rest in here because this is positive. There's nothing negative about God. How can there be? So Jesus says, this is my commandment. And if Jesus says, this is my commandment, we should probably pay attention and pursue it. Now, don't get hung up on the word commandment because that can have a religious connotation to it, but it's not. Get that out of your mind. You'll miss the message. So how can someone command me to love when I don't even love myself? There's a lot of people out there who don't love themselves. I've been through that. It's condemnation, it's depression. That's what depression comes down to. It's rooted out of not having love in your life or you don't love yourself. And if you can't love yourself, you can't love others. That's why your testimony is awesome, Jasmine. What an example. You forgave yourself. you got to forgive yourself. Don't look in your past anymore. See, the Bible says the accuser will keep reminding you of your past. Who's the accuser? That's how he has control over you. That's the only way he has control. He doesn't have control any other way. But he can get you into that negative mindset and condemnation. Then separated, you've are separated. you separated yourself from God. You know, I think some people blame God for a lot of things. Why didn't God stop this? Or why didn't God stop that killing? Or why didn't God do this? Well, you don't understand God because you, you're in condemnation, so you don't know how God operates. You haven't got a relationship with him. Let me just put it this way God gave us free will in the beginning, right? How would it be free will if he intervened? You can ask him to intervene, but most of the time, you know, he gets the blame for a lot of stuff. God doesn't cause destruction, he's a gentleman. He doesn't push himself on anyone, he doesn't tell anyone how to live. He shows us the way and he gives us a choice. He says, Choose life is to choose him. It's up to you. No one's forcing you. It's a choice. At the end of the day, it's a choice. That's free will. So that tells me that's why God doesn't intervene, unless he's been asked to, unless you believe it, because Jesus says we can have faith that can move mountains. Hmm? See, Christians are a powerful people on the earth, eh? We don't even know it. That's the problem. And then even if we do know it, we don't believe it. All creation is waiting eagerly for the reveal of the sons and daughters in Christ. Who do you think that is? So I'll come back to again, how can someone command me to love when I don't love myself? Let me ask you this. There's a lot of parents in this room. Did you tell your kids? Did you command them to love you? Did you tell them to say to to love me? No, no, they learned it off you. You loved them first and they loved you back. That's, what, that's the same with God. You get what you put in, eh? You put in tons of love in your kids, you're going to get tons back. God's put everything in us. He should be getting a lot more back than now, what we've given him now if we're going to be honest with ourselves. The key word here is, as I loved you. As I loved you. We're his children. He loves us. He's done everything to get us to this point. So, Jesus is not saying, I command you to love like an order. It's an outcome. It's an outcome of accepting his love, which enables us to do the very thing he's asking us to do to love other people. We abide in his love. He abides in us. Condemnation, depression, self hate, guilt you know, the feeling, how can God love someone like me? This is what prevents us from believing that he loves us and we don't accept his righteousness. And you just be stuck in that right all the time. It's hard. I know what depression's like. It's so hard to get out of. You don't want to listen to anyone else. You can't. It's only God's love that breaks it. I've tried. I've done the Prozac. I've done the counselling. And it does help to a point. But if you don't tackle the spiritual side of it, it'll never go away. God, if, if I stick to this, Depression leaves. It goes because that's the presence of God. All right, let's go to Romans eight fifteen verse nineteen. And this is Paul the apostle. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by we and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I'm going to stop right there. Did you hear that? The Spirit himself. Who's the Spirit? The Holy Spirit, which abides in us. Remember, Jesus said, I will send the helper. Who's the helper? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us. He teaches us. Not only that, he encourages us. He also points out and tells us constantly to our spirit that you are a child of God. Are you listening? Are you listening? Do we take the time to listen to that? Do we accept it or do we go, no, nah, that's that's not right? I remember when I, I've actually heard the Holy Spirit tell me that. One time I took time out and I said, oh, Holy Spirit, teach me how to listen to you. And I was, thought I was being cheeky. So I sat there and just sat there and sat there and I heard this small little voice go, you are my son. And I thought, what? I thought that's a bit rich. Like, but the scripture says he is testifying to our spirit. He's trying to tell us, you are now the children of God. Let's carry on. Now, if we are children and then we are heirs and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if we indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. A great revealing. it hasn't happened but it's happening that revival in Kentucky Is as, as, as God is going after the young eh, it's spreading it's on 10 campuses now it started in a little chapel very insignificant isn't that like God and apparently it started off with someone like Jasmine just giving a testimony like that and they haven't left it's been like 2 weeks now and they've got crowds, they've got people from overseas and now it's spread It's spreading, and God is resurrecting the youth. Never before as youth had so much disinformation and all that rubbish, they've been fed so much lies. You're not even allowed to say that there's a biological male and woman. I mean, that's a lie. And they get punished for it. A a, A kid got arrested in school because he said, no, there's only male and female. They arrested him. That's how ridiculous things are getting. So now God's like enough. He is filling his love. He is pouring his love out on those those teenagers and those kids. They're the generation coming up. They're the ones they're gonna come. It's good news. God's moving. Enough has been enough. God has seen enough. He's pouring his love. But that's over there. What about us? I'd never heard that prophecy before, but that's encouraging. So what does that tell you? We need to focus on God's love for us. The love train. Look what God did for Jasmine. That's amazing. You're actually brave for sharing that, eh? Really are. That that was really hard. Good on you, Jasmine. You know, it, it reminded me of a vision God gave me about you, and I think I told you this, and you were in that mess. I said, God showed me a vision of you, as a suit, like you're in a professional. So I said, it's not going to be like this. God was saying, I have a plan for you. It's coming to fruition. He showed me a vision of you, clean and bright. It's happening. Right, so now I'll go back to my scripture. Sorry, I been a bit sideways. So in that scripture, Paul's actually talking about two different mindsets, eh? two different spirits, that we can approach God. Well, we can appro- He's saying we can approach God in a slave mentality, which is like unworthiness, or we can approach God as a son or daughter, believing in his love for us. You see, the spirit of condemnation and slavery will view God as a slave owner and as trembling subjects. You know, that was the old fire and brimstone days. The spirit of adoption views God as a loving father, as beloved and we are as beloved children the difference between the way a son serves their father and the way a slave serves their masters a slave a slave performs duties a son performs acts of love the spirit of adoption can change us from fearful slaves to joyful sons and daughters the spirit of adoption allows us to come boldly to the throne of grace as beloved children runs to his fathers in times of trouble like the lost son you might not get this revelation, but all you got to do is run towards God. And watch what happens. He's awesome. Is how easy he's made it. He's like, as long as you come towards me, I'm going to make you righteous. It's all right. You might not get it yet, but just pursue it. Oh, that's the reason why so many people fail in church. Guys that have been around for years that people look up to. That's why you should never hang your faith on someone. Don't hang your faith on me. So, if I fail, then your faith fails because you've put your faith in me. Your faith's in Jesus because he can't fail. People do that all the time. People only come to a church because there's a certain preacher or a pastor there. We found that out when Pastor Don died. I'm going to be honest about it. Half the church left. They weren't here for Jesus. So, their faith failed. They put their faith in a man instead of Jesus. We've got to be real. What's the point if we can't? All right, Peter and John. I'm going to use Peter and John's experience. Peter, to me, is like many Christians, how he first encountered Jesus, and John are like some Christians who got it straight away. You know, the disciple John understood that God loved him, eh? You know, in fact, he's the only disciple to be referred to as the one the Lord loves. It's actually a bit funny, actually, because if you notice, if you read Luke and Mark, and all that, it's not mentioned in there, it's only mentioned in the Gospel of John. So John was writing it in. John was the only one saying, "The Lord, I'm the one the Lord loves. So I was thinking, oh, that's a bit strange. Is he gloating, or has he just been funny? But no, no, he wasn't. You only have to look at his actions. His actions spoke. He had a revelation before everyone else did. He knew his place with God. He was not afraid. He did not approach God with an attitude of I'm not worthy. It didn't even cross his mind. Maybe John understood love before the rest of the disciples did. Maybe he recognised it when he saw it. I don't know. See, it's not like in the Old Testament when Moses came down holding the Ten Commandments and he'd been in the presence of the Lord and the Bible says his face had shone with the glory of God. And when the Israelites saw it, they ran and hid. Ran and hid, just like Adam and Eve ran and hid. So what did Moses have to do? He had to put a veil over his face. And then take it off when he was by himself with God. Well, that veil's gone. You no longer have to be afraid of God. He's made it so that you can come into his presence. Because back then, if you went into God's presence, you dropped dead. Because he was holy. They didn't have the new covenant yet. That's why only certain priests had to go through certain ceremonies that could be in the presence of God. And God knew they couldn't meet it, so God said, right, to forgive your sins for the year, sacrifice a lamb. And it's not not a coincidence that Jesus is referred to the lamb of God. So they had to do that continually. Jesus did it Once. Yes, so they all had the slave mentality. So let's now have a look at Peter, totally opposite to John. Now Jesus comes down to the Sea of Galilee, and he, he's, this is where he's gathering his disciples. And uh, Peter and, and John and all the disciples, or well, some of them, were fishing in a boat, fishing, and they weren't catching anything. And anyway, um, so this is where Jesus calls them. And this is, this is Peter's response in Luke 5 verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now for a long time I thought that was the right reaction because God is holy. Some might think that's honouring God doing that. It's not. You've just put a barrier now. Because now you think you're not worthy to be in his presence. You stand like here and God's over there. How can you have a relationship like that? So all God becomes to you is familiar. How many of you are just familiar with the word? Familiar with church? Oh, I know that, I know that. But you don't really know. You don't have an intimate relationship because you've put a boundary there. It doesn't need to be there. Paul saw Christ as holy, but he saw himself as not worthy. That's what the world does to people. brings you down. He wanted to hide from his presence, just like the Israelites. Peter had a slave mentality of unworthiness. Now, if you fast forward to the Last Supper, and Jesus and, and, and the disciples and Peter—you know—they followed Jesus, but Peter was always at a distance with Jesus spiritually because he still had that, un- sense, that sense of unworthiness. So, when the opportunity arises, he would proclaim his love. His mouth got in the way. If you remember at the Last Supper, Jesus said. There'll be someone here who's going to betray me. And I'm not, that, we all know that was Judas. But Peter piped up and said, Oh, Lord, I would never do that. I would never deny you. I would follow you anywhere. I love you so much. And you proclaim this in front of everybody and all the disciples. What happened the next day? He denied him three times. Can you imagine how Peter felt? Oh, my gosh, you would have felt so bad. He denied Jesus in front of everyone. He tried, he to, when the soldiers came and got Jesus, what did Peter do? He chopped an ear off. What did Jesus do? He picked the ear up and healed him. The Peter's like, but Jesus knew what he was doing, you see, because some people think Jesus was arrested and put on the, the cross. No, Jesus laid down his life. When the soldiers came to him, they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus stepped forward. He laid down his life. They didn't kill him. He laid his life for us. He knew what he was doing. So after all of that, the disciples went back to the fishing boat. But where was John? At the foot of the cross. The one that the Lord loves. What did he end up doing without even knowing it? He followed Jesus. He didn't deny Jesus. Jesus trusted him so much that he said to Mary, Mary, this is your son, son, this is your mother, look after her. He entrusted John with his mum, his spiritual, I mean, his earthly mum. You know, at the Last Supper, it was John that was leaning on Jesus' bosom, his breast was resting on his heart. When you rest on the Lord's heart, you know his secrets, don't you? So, anyway, so now Jesus rises from the dead. And the first thing Jesus says, he tells his angels, Go and tell my disciples and Peter. He specifically mentions Peter because he knows what Peter's going through. Peter's probably the lowest that he's ever been. He's just denied the guy he's followed, seen miracles done. He's the guy who actually had the revelation that he is the Son of God. Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church. But he failed miserably. But Jesus specifically mentioned Peter. And then, so now Jesus goes back to the Sea of Galilee where he found them, and found them fishing again. And in John 21, verse 4 to 7, it says, But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered them, No. I'm going to stop there. Did you hear what Jesus just said? Children. He hadn't called them children until after the cross. The New Testament is the New Testament, but the Gospels are still under the law in a way because the law didn't finish until the price was paid. What happened? It was the first thing he said, children. That's how God sees us after the cross. Never noticed that before. So he said, children, have you any food? And they answered, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. They couldn't even get it into the boat. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, which is John, he said, Peter, it is Jesus. What did did Peter do? He goes, now when Simon Peter had heard it, it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment for he had removed it and plunged into the sea and ran after him. Complete 180A. He got, he got it. He got it. What a difference. And, and then God took Peter's weakness, his mouth, and used him to preach the gospel. Peter was a different man. Look, read Acts. He started the church. The Holy Spirit, he, he was one of the first to receive the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. The church grew. It was Peter. The one that denied him. The one that pretty much renounced Jesus. you just like the worst thing you can do. What does God do? He turns it around. But Peter finally realised who God was. That sense of unworthiness left. Did Jesus give up on Peter? No. No, he actually seeked them out. God is always seeking us out. But did you notice it took John to go, hey, look, it's Jesus. Sometimes we need that person to go, hey, it's Jesus. They can't quite see yet. They just need a bit of a nudge. Did he condemn him? Did he judge him? I'm hoping you can answer that. No. No. There's no condemnation for those who walk in in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is listening to the Holy Spirit telling you you are the Son of God. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus who walk according to the Spirit. And I always wondered, what do you mean walk according to the Spirit? It's walking, listening to the Holy Spirit. Yes, we're going to make mistakes, but we don't get punished for it. Pick ourselves up and we carry on. It's how we react when something goes bad. Do we just turn around and ask, know, oh, this has happened to me, I'm going to go back this way, like Peter. Or do we go, oh, no, actually, God loves me. I have his righteousness, I can keep going. Things will come right. Now I mentioned the robe of righteousness, and I want to reaffirm this. In Psalms 132 verse 9 it says, Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy saints shout for joy. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will, grow, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation and hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. All these scriptures associate righteousness with garments that are worn. In fact, in Hebrew times, to clothe a priest in righteousness is to clear them holy and unto the works of God. They are set apart for the ministry of the temple. And even though in themselves they are sinful, but the ritual of cleansing, they are declared clean and holy and therefore acceptable to God in his service. That was the process in the Old Testament. In the same manner, Jesus has closed us with his righteousness, the righteousness of God, which is the spiritual veil that covers our sinful nature. When God looks at us, he sees his righteousness on us. He will therefore not count us worthy for punishment that is reserved for the wicked. There are wicked people, unfortunately. But even those wicked people, God still loves them. They can still turn around. Because it's a choice. At the end of the day, we all stand before God. You can't. Hide. No one can hide from that. See, the righteousness is the basis for our justification before God, so that we can stand without condemnation, though sinful. Very quiet. Oh, I want to, I want to finish on this, a little story, and I, I got this out. Of, I like, uh, re, I like listening to some of the old guys. You know, they like the generals, like John Austin, Kenneth e. Hagen, and all those guys, Smith Wigglesworth amazing guys man God used them mighty. they did amazing healings you know they lived it these guys brought righteousness out eh? and they were persecuted for it you know, there was a point where church didn't believe in healing eh? I, I, you know, I think Pastor Robin can even admit when, when you guys started preaching righteousness you guys got vilified didn't you yeah you did people used to say things about this church oh, don't go there they're preaching righteousness they're preaching healing it am- amazes me. Did they not read their Bibles? Because it's clearly in there. So it's like they've got a veil on them, eh? So anyway, I like listening to those guys and reading their books because they have great insight. They open the doorway for us. say hey? we've got to build upon their revelation. That's how we honour those guys. It's up to us now to take it and run with it. They've passed the baton. It's up to us to take it and run with it, isn't it? You know, they've done. They've done their. They've run their race. So I, I, I like to read John Austin, Joel Austin's father. And yeah, I like this little illustration he wrote, and this kind of demonstrates God's love. He says, Consider a field of grass in the winter months. It's usually brown and unattractive, very insignificant. In fact, you could pass that field day after day and not even notice it. So in the springtime when rain falls and the sun begins to shine on that field, the grass turns green and it becomes a lush pasture. The cattle begin to eat the grass, bear their young. Soon there's calves skipping around, mothers carrying around, enjoying life. That field is an example of the grace of God. You can be insignificant, businessman, wife, husband, anything, gardener, pretty much someone people don't take notice of. But then God looks at you and the sun begins to shine on you. Not the sun, the sun. And not only do you become attractive to God, but you become attractive to those around you. It doesn't matter who you are or what your past is or what you've done. When God's grace comes into your life, let it transform you because he loved you first. He loved you first. I really do hope you guys caught something out of that. Let's not waste it. Pursue righteousness, pursue his kingdom. Seek the kingdom first and his righteousness and it makes sense. It starts to come, the revelation's getting bigger. This year for me, righteousness was a revelation. I knew about righteousness, but I didn't know. I didn't really, and God's just like turned a light bulb on, and and it's growing. It's growing. Can I just, I'm going to end the service, but I don't want you to switch off. It just means I'm ending the preaching. So don't switch off, don't get in your minds. I've got to get my car keys, or I've got to go. But can we just all close our eyes? I just want to give an opportunity. I don't know how many of you are saved or unsaved or maybe you've gone away from God and you haven't been in a long time, but that's cool. If you're one of those people, I just want to offer an opportunity. I want to offer you an opportunity to say yes to God and run with it. You don't have to do anything. You just say yes. It's a choice. If you don't want to, that's okay. Maybe you're not ready, but I'd encourage you to keep it on your mind. I would rather prefer you didn't walk out their door without saying yes, but, you know, that's your decision. If that's you, if you feel like you want to do that, I'll just ask you to raise your hand. I'll give you a few moments. No one's looking. If you want to... Right, I guess everyone's saved. All right, if anyone wants... We're just going to open the prayer altar up. If anyone wants prayer for anything sickness or revelation, whatever it is, the leadership and the ministry team will pray for you. I just want to finish in prayer. So thank you, Father God, for your love that you have for us. Thank you for your righteousness that you put on us. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for the blood that was spilt so that we are now in your kingdom again. We give you all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I just ask you to respect those that come up for prayer. Please don't talk in the service. If you want to talk or you want to, that's that's fine. You can go out the back there, but let's be respectful of those that are wanting help. If you want to, I would rather encourage you to actually stay and pray while that person's getting prayed for. Participate, don't be a spectator. Otherwise, feel free to go out in the cafe and socialise, but that's pretty much the end of the service. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.